Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part one of a two-part conversation with Rick and Grassi and Michael Lerner as they discuss a life in healing, cultural transformation, and psychedelic medicine. Rick and Grassi, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. We're sitting in your living room on Whitby Island in the town of Langley uh, with uh, my colleague Greg Garabino, who is uh, our sound technician and friend. Extraordinary. And your two uh, dogs. Would you like to introduce your dogs? Uh, A couple of Havanese called Chico and Loki. Yeah. And um, we're here to uh, talk about your life work. Uh, As will emerge in the course of the conversation, our lives are deeply intertwined. It's fair to say that uh, you and your wife, Peggy Taylor, were really central reasons why my wife, Cheryl, and I um, found a second home up here on Whidbey and began to do Commonweal Northwest up here, a series of five projects that tie Commonweal and Bolinas with Whidbey Island and with your work and so forth. And it's a blessing to have you here on the island. It's a great joy to be here. Uh, But let's start with uh, the core themes in your life. Um, You are the uh, co-founder of Hollyhock Retreat Center on Cortez Island in British Columbia. Uh, And um, you and Peggy uh, uh, started uh, gatherings there called the Summer Gatherings that have been going on for how many years now? Well, this will be the 30th year coming up. Uh, We began in 1986. And how do you uh, describe the Summer Gatherings? Well, um, it's a little tricky because um, it's an experience that we hope uh, allows people to be uh, themselves in community or in in, in a large group. Uh, The the gatherings tend to be in the range of 90 to 110 people, uh, which I consider a large group, by the way. Um, And, you know, when we began back in 1986, uh, we had just come out of being co-presidents of the Association for Humanistic Psychology, and we had been at lots of conferences that I had produced through my organization in Boston, another holistic center called Interface. And it was very clear uh, from from the personal point of view that most conferences are uh, inadequate or boring. There's something in terms of the process that, that leaves out the best that humans have to offer and share. So we wanted to uh, begin to experiment with conferencing formats that, that were more open ended and open-minded. Uh, and so we we initially called it the Hollyhock Invitational Conference and then uh, felt that uh, we didn't want it to sound exclusive on the level of uh, what, what are we really trying to do. Well, the Hollyhock Summer Gathering's purpose is to gather intergener- intergenerational and multicultural leaders together uh, to uh, play together, relax together, and at the same time exchange ideas and knowledge uh, that leads to action. And that's what it's become over 30 years. It's been very, very successful with that. 
And you extended those gatherings first to uh, the winter gatherings at the Whidbey Institute here on Whidbey Island, uh, and then more recently to fall gatherings down at Commonweal, which you and Peggy and your colleagues have been doing with uh, Orrin Slosberg and me and others at Commonweal. Yes, yes. It, it seemed like, okay, the format, the process, this way of convening uh, leaders uh, it works, it's effective, it's fun. Uh, it's, it's really rooted in my philosophy that if you want to create a new culture, throw a better party. And that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually when it comes to human creativity, uh, joy-based creativity works better than fear-based uh, necessity, let's say. And you and Peggy uh, and your colleagues who have done this with you are really geniuses at this work. I mean, I, I remember the first uh, summer gatherings that I went to. And as you know, I've been doing these week-long retreats for cancer patients for 30 years in the Commonweal Cancer Health Program. And I know what transformative work is. But we do those with eight people at a time. Mm -hmm. And here, as I watched what you and Peggy did, you had a uh, soft technology, for want of a better word, a process that was as impeccably skillful as the process of the cancer help program. But in the course of four or five days, you were able to do extraordinarily deep work with 100 people at a time. Well, thank you. Uh, we'd like to think that uh, this is deep transformational work, and I think it is. Uh, first of all, to tip uh, my hat to Peggy, my wife, Peggy Taylor, co-founder of Power of Hope uh, with Charlie Murphy, uh, a lot of the facilitation, especially arts-based facilitation that we use, uh, is rooted in the work that they've developed for creativity with teens and young people. Uh, and we jokingly uh, started to call the uh, summer gatherings uh, Power of Hope Camps for Adults. Uh, and while that's a bit of an exaggeration, you know, the idea is that we took very seriously this notion that with skilled facilitation, people can develop trust and safety very rapidly and open up to uh, new levels of showing up and engaging and, and uh, being creatively expressive uh, uh, with each other. And uh, again, uh, after 30 years, you kind of look look back and say, well, we're doing something right because time after time, uh, it, it, it becomes simpler. Uh, I don't want to say it's effortless because we definitely have to pay attention to creating a space, uh, I call it a field of love, that, uh, that holds the group and holds the energy. But, you know, this is a kind of servant leadership where once you've created that space, you can just get out of the way and the generativity uh, just happens. Now, a lot of the techniques that you use, uh, uh, Peggy, you and Peggy use the word uh, creative community to describe them. A lot of them come out of improv work. Is that correct? Well, the theater uh, aspect of it, mm -hmm. uh, and you might even say some of the music. Uh, right. I'm a jazz musician, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, getting comfortable with making stuff up mm -hmm. uh, is really important. But yes, uh, Peggy and Charlie and, you know, uh, to, to give credit where Torkin Wakefield and a bunch of other friends and colleagues have uh, developed this work with us, uh, 
it's, it's, it's not like uh, that we own this uh, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the creativity. But, yes, uh, improv or getting comfortable with making mistakes and making stuff up. And uh, I call it getting stupid together. But what I mean by that is the willingness to be silly. You know, mm -hmm. The high point, for instance, of these gatherings, inevitably for me, is the open mic night. Mm -hmm. Because there you're asking people who are already generative and creative in their own uh, work uh, and life uh, to share something about their creativity that nobody has experienced before. And, and so people will read poems, sing songs, do dances, comedy, improv. It, it's, it's so much fun. Mm -hmm. And laughter, to me, is the key to healthy community. You, know, you want to experience joy uh, in a party-like way, uh, mm -hmm. the kind of freedom that goes along mm -hmm. with that. You know? It seems simple from the outside when you watch it, but when you watch it in depth, as I have many times, it actually involves a tremendous amount of skill to do this well. Um, it's uh, uh, Peggy, uh, your wife Peggy Taylor and Charlie Murphy, the co-founders of uh, Partners for Youth Empowerment, which does this kind of work for young people all over the world, um, have written a book called Catch the Fire about these techniques, which is a wonderful guide to... Uh, but one of, the, one of the things I learned early on um, is that part of the method is that you start by asking participants to take very small risks, and the risks gradually increase. Uh, and so you don't start with the big risks, you start with small risks, and, and the risks increase as the community deepens and as the willingness to take risks uh, goes up. Yes, I yeah. think uh, that's the process. Yeah. Uh, and, but here, here's a caveat that we've learned after 30 years, uh, tip a hat to Rupert Sheldrake, my friend, uh, the biologist who came up with this notion of morphic fields. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really believe he's got it right, that uh, when a creative or generative field emerges, it gets stronger over time and the learning curve gets shorter uh, because the field literally is growing and there's more connections and more mm -hmm. uh, individuals engaged mm -hmm. in, in, in the field uh, of uh, creative process. And I, I think what we've learned is that you start and you do the uh, risk-taking incrementally like that, but it takes less time for people. I used to joke and say, well, it used to take us two days to achieve a level of safety and, and, and trust that would allow people to take big risks. Now it takes like an hour. Mm. And I don't think I'm delusional. I, I think there's actually... Well, of course, you have people who have been coming to the summer gatherings for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So built into the community now is you know, a tremendous amount of mutual trust. And, and one of the other things that's really critical to the success of these gatherings, I mean, at one level, Peggy does a lot of the leadership on the improv and mm -hmm. some of the music things. And a key role that you play is in the invitations to who comes. Yes, I would say that's probably my most important role is paying attention to uh, both uh, thematically. Uh, I, I tend to really wait until 
the previous gathering is over and then start to mull over, okay, where is this leading us? Where, what, what theme would, would coalesce uh, energetically in, in a way? And then who, who should we invite? And it's not just me who invites, but I, I, I take the lead in that. What I do is I ask friends like you, you know, mm. who do you think would both contribute and benefit to a theme like this at mm-hmm. the gathering next year? And I am really happy to say that a lot of synchronicity and serendipity always results in a group of people who, I mean, it's the most disparate group you could imagine, and yet, when they come together and spend that time together in this process, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not only a love fest, it's productive projects actually mm-hmm. emerge, you know, liaisons and, and collaborations and, and things that uh, are total surprises. Mm-hmm. And I always point out to people, look, because they say, well, uh, what's the outcome? You know, why, why do you do it this way? It's because we want to trust. I, I call it a deep abiding faith mm-hmm. in the spirit or in the universe to provide what's going to be needed to take another step uh, mm-hmm. you know, into a positive future. And uh, again, I hope I'm not sounding overconfident. I'm just saying that after 30 years, I know this works mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Now, you often call these gatherings, particularly the summer gatherings, uh, the decisive decade. Do I have that right? Um, Why do you call it the decisive decade? Well, again, mulling over the idea of uh, starting in 2010, uh, it just seemed that we needed to focus or recognize that there really is a tipping point emerging, you know, in in particular around climate change. (laughs) This is a good time to be talking about this because here we are in the middle of the decisive decade and guess what? Something shifted this year, you know. (laughs) Paris was huge uh, in terms of uh, what needs to happen. Paris being the treaty in Paris. COP21, the first real global treaty to address climate change. Mm -hmm. So, that was uh, our way of arbitrarily just saying, look, let's imagine that the next 10 years are the tipping point or, or, or could be uh, a tipping point toward a positive future. Uh, what do we want to focus our attention on? What's important? And, uh, you know, for instance, the winter gathering that's coming up at the Whitney Institute next month changed the story, changed the future. That's a theme based on David Corton's latest book, which I think is important. It, it recognizes that change at the level of story or cosmology or paradigm or worldview is what may allow everything to shift in, in terms of a pattern of uh, you know living living on this planet that uh, at the moment is not viable. Hmm. So. You had, you were looking at your computer as uh, I came in, as you mulled over our conversation, you had a list of key themes uh, that your remarkably rich life, work, and experience um, seemed to you to summarize some of the central threads in your work. Could we just go over that list as a starting place? Sure. Um, again, it's, a, oh, it's not a chronological or developmental right. list, right. but, you know, the things that have heart and meaning for me and have been formative in my life are art and music, beauty, nature, 
storytelling, immersive media, psychedelic medicine, meditation, community, consciousness research, cosmology, creation stories. So I'd like to go over that again a little more slowly, just partly because I didn't write them all down fast enough. But art and music, beauty, storytelling. Nature. Nature. Immersive media. Immersive media. Psychedelic medicine. Psychedelic medicine. Meditation. Community. Mm -hmm. Consciousness research. Mm -hmm. Cosmology and creation stories. Cosmology and what? Creation stories. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many places that we could jump into that. Um, But let's jump into uh, psychedelic medicine uh, because um, something you've been involved with for a long time and... uh, you have uh, followed that trajectory with uh, close attention. How would you describe the sort of outline of the history of psychedelic medicine that you have lived and experienced? What is that, what is that sweep? I have a broad sense of it, yeah. but not as detailed as you are. Well, I think if, if I just share a few personal uh, experiences and stories about, uh, you know, because I, I was so immersed in both the uh, the research and the clinical applications mm-hmm. that uh, I, in many ways I'm kind of typical of mm-hmm. those in the psychological or my background is psychiatry. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those of us who were interested in the healing potential of uh, psychedelics uh, really developed over the course of my life, mm-hmm. uh, beginning in college. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I arrived at Cornell University in 1965, which was really the beginning, you know, the summer of love was coming up in the next couple of years, and ALSD research and the psilocybin research that uh, Timothy Leary and uh, Richard Alpert were doing at Harvard, uh, the work at, on the West Coast uh, with uh, Jim Gordon and Willis Harmon and SRI and all of this uh, had been going on in the 50s and 60s and I just was lucky enough uh, to well in my freshman year of college to experience uh, LSD for the first time uh, in a way that uh, it blew my mind I guess is the way I would put it It, uh, uh, well just to give you a little bit I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate at Cornell and I was studying you know the logical positivism of the time and you know it was kind of an empirical reductionist materialistic uh, worldview and philosophy science laden as they say but uh, the first time I took LST all of the all of the constructs and abstractions of, of philosophy fell away and something, quite phenomenological happened, you know, a disillusion of the ego, however you want to put this, but I saw, or I got it, you might say, that, oh, the world is much more connected and beautiful and flowing than uh, my 
analytical mind has been able to embrace. Uh, and that, that was uh, a worldview transformation that happened in one day that piqued my curiosity about, well, what is it about our tendency to want to find a truth or a certainty and hold on to it at the exclusion of what is clearly a larger reality that we all are immersed in. And it seemed to me it would be useful to, because I, by, by the time I graduated from Cornell in 1969, I was hell-bent on becoming a psychiatrist who was going to work with psychedelic medicines to uh, basically open people up to themselves and to uh, a greater degree of health and happiness and freedom uh, than you could have if you're stuck <laughs> in, in a picture of yourself uh, uh, in the world that's uh, fear-based and hate-based and prejudiced and biased and you know uh, so that's that's where it started for me uh, and quite honestly you know that's 50 years ago and uh, all my life work has uh, been an uh, you know explication or, or an exploration of how not just with some, because that's the other thing, it's not the drugs that we're talking about here, it's about the human capacity to transform consciousness, which is uh, what became my major focus. Make a long story short, Nixon, with the war on drugs, shut the door on all legitimate psychedelic research just as I was entering medical school. So um, the work uh, that I did is I, I went through medical school, I, did a psychiatric residency, uh, and some of the most interesting work uh, I did uh, in that first uh, decade of my professional career had to be done underground. Mm -hmm. and we don't need to go into the details, but mm -hmm. suffice it to say, it wasn't legal, a lot of what we wanted to explore. Then we began to look for, okay, well, what are non-drug possibilities here? And this is, this is how I became engaged with uh, media artists who were working with, uh, especially with computer art and, and uh, you know, video art, uh, again, in the early 70s, this was all so new, you know, and so radical. But what I saw was that my internal experiences, whether in meditation or consciousness expansion of one kind or another, there are lots of techniques and psychotechnologies to do this work, uh, or the uh, high-dose psychedelics, uh, gave me literally insight into patterns of life and, and patterns in the universe that literally live inside all of us. I mean, there they are. They, they just pop up. You see them, you feel them, you see yourself as a part of this flow state. And the media artists of the time were beginning to be able to visualize and with electronic music, etc., to, to actually externalize these in, internal look. So we used to call ourselves psychonauts. We were psychologically exploring inner space just the way humans were beginning to reach out to the moon and, and outer space. So, you know, these, these uh, somewhat uh, trivial notions of inner and outer being one and the same turns out are not so trivial. They're, uh, they're a reality that lots of us experienced uh, in a myriad of ways. So I make a long story short, I 
began to work with media artists who could do this kind of thing. And this is where my ultimate uh, commitment to working uh, with uh, the Story Dome, something we can talk about later, uh, an immersive multimedia environment, a dome, an inflatable dome, where you can explore outer space and our relationship to the vastness of the cosmos, as well as the uh, inner spaces of uh, the human psyche. Uh, but it was in the early 70s, uh, and I was uh, starting to work with Buckminster Fuller at that time, who you know, knew a lot about patterns in nature. That was the fascination. What we were recognizing is that psychedelic states are really just uh, another scale of the patterns uh, uh, in the cosmos that, that humans have access to. And uh, started to explore ways to uh, expand consciousness without the psychedelics. Uh, and this is why I created Interface, uh, a holistic education center in Boston that allowed us to bring the best teachers on the planet to Boston to both teach us and also share with the public, you know, the, uh, the human potential movement, the humanistic psychology movement, the consciousness movement, the feminist movement, the ecological, all, all of the uh, radical edges that uh, had emerged in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, they needed a home. So they had places like Interface and Esalen and, uh, you know, other oasis in Chicago, the human potential mm. retreat centers, etc. It was a wild ride. <laughs> it is a wild ride. Um, I want to talk about our relationship for a moment because um, you happen to be a very important human being in my personal life. And, um, uh, and I, I find um, a sense of comfort and connectedness with you that um, is very, very helpful to me. Um, so I just I want, in the course of this conversation, to acknowledge my debt to you for uh, who you are, who you have become, and what you offer the community. Um, as Cheryl and I um, moved up part-time to Whitby, uh, really not, as a matter of fact, I want to say not... Um, not lightly, because we weren't looking for a second home. We're not wealthy people. But we found this tiny old place in this town of Langley where you live. It's kind of like Bolinas a thousand miles north in certain ways. Um, and um, But I really was called here very much the same way I was called to create Commonweal in Bolinas 40 years ago. And there are deep parallels between... Bolinas and Langley, between West Marin, where Bolinas is based, and South Whitby, where Langley is, between the Whitby Institute, where you do the winter gatherings and Commonweal. As you know, I've done over a dozen conversations up here for the new school, including with your wife, Peggy Taylor, with Fritz Hull, who uh, started uh, the predecessor of the Whitby Institute, um, uh, and Chinook Learning Center. Excuse me? It was called the Chinook Learning Center. Yeah, the Chinook Learning Center. 
and many others, uh, extraordinary people up here. And, um, and what I want to say is that I didn't know why I was called to be up here, but what I've discovered up here is an extended community in South Whidbey where there is a density of what sociologists would call social capital um, uh, that is quite extraordinary. There's a level of mutual support that cuts across political differences and economic differences and all kinds of things, uh, whether it be with, um, uh, you know, uh, used clothing stores that donate their proceeds to feed hungry people up here or uh, just dozens of different activities um, that support the community with a density of intention and that I really have not witnessed before. And so, um, so in this extended uh, South Whidbey community, there are many subcultures, if you will. But there is a subculture that is broadly speaking, uh, or a community of friends, uh, where you and Peggy play a very central role. There are others who play central roles, but you play a very central role. You're listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Rick Ingrassi and Michael Lerner. As I came to understand it better, um, uh, I came to understand that in the smaller community that, that you play this role in, that when people are in difficulty or in trouble or when they need um, support or counsel, you're often one of the first people they talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I came to understand that in archetypal terms, uh, you're from a Sicilian background, and, um, and you're, you're, this one friend of ours suggested to me, you're, you're kind of like a Don, a Sicilian Don of this extended family. Um, That's a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword, <laughs> but the point is that there's a, kind of a kind uh, paternal energy uh, that um, once I identified it, I understood why it is powerful to me. Um, So anyway, I believe in these conversations and my own personal vulnerability as part of the conversation. And... um, Good. And I just, I just wanted to say that you matter to me, and um, it's in that spirit that we're having this conversation. Well, thank you, Michael. Yeah, that, yeah, that means yeah. a lot to me. Yeah, you matter yeah. to me. Yeah, I, I so, love you a lot. Well, I'm grateful. I love you. So, one of the places that um, I have a different take on the world than you, not not different completely, but in emphasis, is that, I think it's fruitful to explore, is that you are able to believe more deeply in the potential that changing the story will change the future than I am. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I tend to uh, share the hope that that's the truth. But um, I find that the forces arrayed against us are so powerful that um, there is both value in in trying to change the story and change the outcome. It, it matters deeply what you and we are trying to do. But it's also worth acknowledging that we may not pull that off. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. All bets are off is the way I like it. Yeah. And that's both, to me, the good news and the bad news. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, um, my other... Uh, intellectual mentor back in the 60s and 70s was Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think some of my uh, hopefulness is rooted in an understanding of the accelerated relationship between technology and culture. And we, we're all experiencing, whoever is listening to this knows what I'm talking about. Things are moving faster and faster. The rate of change is accelerating. Uh, and the powers that be, the military-industrial complex, the medical-pharmaceutical complex, I mean, these are huge, mm-hmm. you know, global forces at this point. They're not even national uh, no. institutions. They're multinational. Um, they're based on a worldview and on a story mm-hmm. that I think is maladaptive at this point. One of the things you learn about evolution, if you, you know, study uh, biological evolution, is that in an environment that's constantly changing, the role of the organism, uh, what's required is you have to adapt to the changes at a rate that allows you to succeed and survive. Well, when the rate of change speeds up and your response is downright atavistic, I mean, look at the political responses we're getting to the problems uh, facing the world right now, at least on, on, on one, end of the political spectrum, it's, uh, it's, it's so outdated and, and outmoded that uh, you, know, you don't want to see the world go that way. My, my point is that in the midst of this complexity and accelerated change, there's an opportunity for humans to develop this capacity. This is where the artistic piece and the improvisational piece comes in, uh, to reinvent ourselves, uh, to tell a better story. A story that reflects values of love and cooperation and social capital, as you put it, which are basically relationships based on uh, reciprocity and sharing. You know? uh, that <clears throat> ambiguity and not knowing what's going to happen is the reality that we're experiencing more and more. On a, on a daily basis. So imagine a thousand years ago, I mean, when you were born into a culture, it was a lifestyle, a values matrix, a worldview, a cosmology, a creed, you know what I mean? And didn't change over the course of your generation or multiple generations. Look at the pace of change. Look at the kids who are growing up with digital technology. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a different world. And it's a world that's in flux. And I look to these young people and realize, wow, they are more comfortable embracing conflict and ambiguity 
and uh, you know multiple points of view. You know, whether it's multicultural, whether it's sexuality and, and the gender uh, uh, fluidity. You know, it's it, it's clear that that's going to be the future. The ability to let go of having to have certainty and strict authoritarian order and to live in uh, networks of communities that uh, are life-oriented or life-affirming. So that's, uh, in the face of all the stuff you're talking about, that's where my hope comes from. It's, it's this deep abiding faith that human nature, you know, <laughs> that it's really the survival of the kindest, mm -hmm. not the survival of the fittest that, uh, that will bring us through this uh, you know, evolutionary quantum leap. Mm -hmm. And I hope that is so. And for whatever reason, I am more comfortable balancing that hope with a, um, for want of a better word, tough-minded analysis of what is actually happening. Mm -hmm. I don't think we disagree at all either about the central importance of hope mm -hmm. or about the reality of the powers that be. I don't think there's a difference between us on either one of those. I think the difference is where we reside. And I think that both characterologically and because of your extended lifelong exploration with psychedelics, or I like the term entheogens, which some people mm -hmm. use, you know, that which enable us to touch the face of the divine. Mm -hmm. um, both characterologically and I don't think you can separate it because of this deep immersion, not only in psychedelics and entheogens, but also on different approaches that um, support that awareness of patterns in the universe. You've done a tremendous amount more of that than I have, mm -hmm. a tremendous amount. And so I still reside in a world that, um, you know, I did a few psychedelics 30 years ago, but I haven't touched them since. I've thought about doing them. I may still do them, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Never too late. It's not too late. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but nonetheless, where I reside is um, in such a strong awareness that um, in 20 years, in 20 years, uh, we're going to be deep into climate change. Uh, the oceans may not have many forms of fish in them anymore. You know, uh, uh, the level of environmental refugees of everything else. Um, are going to be overwhelming. And if it were only climate change, but as you know, my mantra is that there are toxic chemicals and the depletion of the ozone layer and habitat destruction and genetically modified organisms and biotech and nanotech and robotics. And so we're moving into being uh, increasingly artificial people on an artificial planet. Um, and I'm just not sure that small groups of people who gather... Uh, with great hope to change the story are going to cut it, mm -hmm. just to be clear about where I am. And therefore, I think there is a certain peril, in addition to the hope, in 
not holding on to, for want of a better word, a realpolitik analysis, not in the service, as realpolitik usually is, of corporate power and national power, but a tough-minded look at the reality in the service of hope, in the service of uh, understanding what is really going on so that we can better navigate it. And my critique of the essentially romantic nature of the counterculture, which, you know, I'm part of and which has influenced me deeply, is that in its kind of exquisite sensibility and sensitivity to beauty and harmony and love and all of those things, it lets go of an awareness of um, what is actually happening and leaves that to powers that exploit. So in saying this to you, I continue a conversation we've had for a long time. For sure, and I appreciate it. Yeah. And number two, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this is a situation where, from a mythological point mm-hmm. of view, you're talking about needing both the Apollonian mm-hmm. and the Dionysian. Exactly. You know, uh, the idea that one or the other is the quote-unquote answer to our, our prayers or right. our problems uh, would be, I think, a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, on the level of, again, personality, characterological mm-hmm. uh, behaviors, Mm-hmm. Um, thank God you and I are different. Yeah. Because and I am more Apollonian right. and you are more Dionysian. That's right. You know, and, yeah. and, and uh, vive la différence. Yeah, exactly. My point about ambiguity mm-hmm. is that imagine that the artist has to hold both the Apollonian yeah. and the Dionysian mm-hmm. and let them not resolve mm-hmm. one way or the other. It's like we have to be able to embrace the mystery yeah. of this. And for those who don't know the references, um, do you want to say a word about Apollonian and Dionysian just to decipher that for people? Well, Apollo is associated, uh, the Greek god associated with uh, rational, mm-hmm. analytical, you know, mm-hmm. linear sequential thinking, mm-hmm. uh, problem solving, mm-hmm. uh, real politique. Mm-hmm. Dionysus was... Uh, a playboy mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. a lover and uh, a partier and uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to like to alter consciousness mm-hmm. uh, was really caught up with the uh, with the feminine mm-hmm. quite a bit so some of the Apollo was mind. also a god of music and uh, That's right. lots of other things so it wasn't just linear no uh, no but I, I'm trying but, to make but the, the point is, but yeah in, but in simple terms and I think Nietzsche was the one who um who raised to uh, contemporary awareness this Apollonian-Dionysian mm-hmm. dichotomy. dichotomy? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's really useful. Just, I mean, we talked about it informally, but um, uh, I think I hold, and I haven't worked this through, but I think my current state of thought is to hold that question of the balance. Uh, I would actually prefer the term romantic to Dionysian. Okay. Uh, just because the romantic movement was such a powerful response against the industrial movement, mm. you know, 
the poetry, uh, the music, yeah, the art. Yeah. Exactly. William Blake had a great line about, uh, you know, trying to save the world from Newton's single vision, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, really, I don't think that people are aware of the degree to which the counterculture... Um, continues the Romantic movement, the 19th century Romantic movement. Um, And the Romantic movement had many, many important dimensions to it. Uh, But also historically, it was a precursor of fascism, you know. Mm -hmm. And so part of the issue with Romanticism and the Dionysian is that in its um, dismissal of the rational, uh, it can uh, lend itself uh, to tremendous, um, tremendous darkness. You know, no question about yeah. it. You know, any ideology exactly taken to its extreme is dangerous. Exactly. You know? And, uh, you know, the mass psychology of fascism mm-hmm. is a form of idealization mm-hmm. that's dangerous. You know? Right. It's, it's, uh, the reason. I, I, I have great hope uh, in, in terms of embracing the unknown, you know, mm-hmm. recognizing the reason I'm emphasizing the acceleration of change mm-hmm. is that, well, j- just the generation of new knowledge on a daily basis mm-hmm. is so vast that we're swimming, we're drinking out of a fire hose, you might say, uh, in a sea of information and knowledge. And a lot of people are getting overwhelmed. Uh, that's a dangerous thing, too, because mm-hmm. as soon as you feel... I mean, this is where I think one of the proto-fascist things starts to happen. Uh, Donald Trump being an example to me, mm-hmm. you know. People are disoriented, afraid, economically challenged, they're insecure. It's, I mean, this is a moment that's rife for uh, totalitarianism. Uh, it's also a moment where if we expand our capacity and open our minds... And, and recognize, oh, not knowing is okay. We don't have to have certitude about everything. As a matter of fact, we can't possibly. Uh, it's delusional to think, you know, that, that we can pin down truth uh, at this uh, moment in history. So what are the tools? And if, if you look at my life work, I've just been looking around for the best tools available to help people shift into a more open-minded mm-hmm. uh, uh, way of being, uh, which includes those dichotomies we're talking, you know, the universe, the yin-yang of everything is uh, is there, but there's also a level of integration that the human mind is capable of mm-hmm. that uh, I want us to uh, exercise that muscle mm-hmm. a lot more. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you introduced me to that I found important was... Uh, a book on deep community by a Canadian thinker and activist. Can you remind me of his name? Paul Bourne. Paul Bourne, yeah. Deepening Community. Is deepening Community. Talk a little about Paul Bourne's work on Deepening Community and why you found it important. Well, you know, uh, your critique of uh, small groups, uh, you know, changing the story and then therefore changing the world mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is, is a legitimate one until you recognize that small communities on this planet in this moment are all linked together. Mm-hmm. That, that there is a noosphere emerging. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, 
you know, well, you can call it the global brain, doesn't matter. There's a consciousness that wasn't possible before that allows people to live in a place with the people who are face-to-face members of their communities uh, in such a way that instead of a shallow sense of, you know, trivial interaction uh, that you see in most uh, communities at this point, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think you know what I mean, that uh, most people don't know their neighbors, they don't have uh, relationships that are on a trajectory to go deeper on a, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Paul Bourne's work, uh, and he's a Mennonite, by the way, and, uh, you know, if you know anything about the Mennonite communities, uh, sometimes strong communities are born out of persecution, and uh, the Mennonites were severely persecuted. Right, they came out of the Ukraine, they were severely persecuted both by the Nazis and by the Soviets. Some came to Canada, his family came to Canada, He had this experience. They were farmers who were accustomed to surviving persecution. And uh, and from that experience of being uh, part of a strong, surviving Mennonite community, he he created this uh, sense of what deep community is and went on to found a nonprofit. Yeah, the Tamaric Institute, yeah. That works to end poverty in Canada by supporting... Deep community. That's right. And, you know, just to be clear, Paul Bourne's idea of deep community involves communities where people are sharing their stories, Mm -hmm. are caring for one another, Mm -hmm. are enjoying one another. Again, the the idea that uh, Mm joy-based human community is is the best or, or... one of the best uh, ways for people mm-hmm. to relate. And the fourth is working together to create a better world. Those four things, uh, when you see them uh, in some kind of harmony uh, in, in, in communities, uh, you have a community that is a deep or deepening community. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I would make the case that what you experience here on South Whidbey mm-hmm. is those elements in action. You know. Would you go over those four again? Yeah, uh, sharing our stories. Sharing stories. Caring for one another. Caring. Enjoying one another. Enjoying. And working together to create a better world. Mm-hmm. Simple. I, there, I really deeply agree with you. See, at that level, I don't have any disagreement with you at all. And as I said, it's a difference in emphasis. But to my mind, that's simply true. Um, and he, he contrasts a deep community with shallow community, right. as you said, the, where people don't know their neighbors. And then the third kind of community he talks about is fear-based community, right. which is, all right, they're dense communities, but they're uh, united against something, yeah. whether it's you know a minority or something like that. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Paul Bourne, the reason I mentioned the Mennonite mm-hmm. uh, persecution experience, mm-hmm. is that they went from being a fear-based, mm-hmm. persecuted group mm-hmm. against the world, you know, mm-hmm. the oppressors, uh, to become a, a deep community that, I mean, the Mennonites not only concern, are concerned about poverty in Canada, they're, they, they donate hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars globally to alleviate poverty. And 
if you read the book, you, there, there's elements uh, of, you know, they have these bake sales or this annual event where they make a thousand pies and have all these mm -hmm. quilts. They raise hundreds of thousands of dollars that they give away. You know? mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think whether it's a shallow community or a fear-based community, uh, uh, and again, just think about Amer America, where we live, you know, and, you know, this is certainly a situation where the uh, big box, you know, mass consumer culture uh, is ripe with shallow community, you mm -hmm. know, people who think that if buying or shopping or consuming is somehow going to be meaningful and fulfilling. And of course, everybody knows ultimately it isn't, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the fear based piece, I mean, look what's happening around the guns and the terrorism and the craziness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're caught in, in a web of fear mm -hmm. and prejudice and ignorance that's uh, this is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, for those of us who understand that, oh, there is another way, mm -hmm. you know, another world is possible, but you have to do a lot of healing around, in particular, people's traumatic experiences. I mean, 9-11, you've got, as a psychiatrist, I can tell you, that was a serious trauma mm -hmm. to the psyche of the American people mm -hmm. and the world. And we haven't recovered. You know, mm -hmm. one of the reasons uh, ISIS and other groups like that can terrify us is, is because the uncertainty mm -hmm. is real. <laughs> and one of the things about psychedelic medicine, which you know a great deal about, is that uh, it is very efficacious uh, for some people with trauma. Yeah, MDMA in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I understand that a lot of uh, veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth have been doing this privately because it's a way to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there are research studies now uh, showing the uh, tremendous efficacy yeah. of MDMA for uh, PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, and healing trauma. Uh, but, you know, studies with 12 and 20 uh, patients... Uh, mm -hmm aren't going to cut it in the face of the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of traumatized uh, veterans uh, coming back from these wars. Mm -hmm. And so word has it, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, the vets are taking it into their own hands and, and doing mm -hmm. this, this work underground. Uh, mm -hmm. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's just, mm -hmm. I, I think it's tragic that, mm -hmm. that uh, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I feel hopeful around the psychedelic medicine scene is that, Cannabis is now being understood to be mm -hmm. a medicine, mm -hmm. you know, and it's being uh, also seen as a recreational drug uh, to be a lot less harmful than things like alcohol mm -hmm. or prescription drugs like OxyContin and the heroin uh, epidemic that's occurring in major cities everywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is a moment where mm -hmm. if we just try to look at the reality and the experience of what these altered states can produce. Mm -hmm. I mean, the psilocybin research at uh, Johns Hopkins is showing that one psilocybin session can change a person's uh, personality permanently uh, toward a more open-minded uh, way of, of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. One session, think about that. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that is a very hopeful sign because that's what we need. We need more openness to embrace ambiguity and change and multiculturalism and diversity, you know, all the things that are 
if you're fear-based and in that conservative uh, mindset where the other is bad and you have to destroy them or <laughs> build a wall around mm-hmm. in the Mexican border or keep all Muslims, I mean, that, that kind of craziness can only happen uh, if you're in that fear-based uh, consciousness. Mm-hmm. So many directions I can take this, but I do want to keep bringing it back a little bit to the challenges um, just to see how you deal with them. Let's take Donald Trump's wall uh, or what's happening with refugees in Europe. Um, what is happening is, is that a result of a set of interlocking global catastrophes, you know, the falling apart in Europe of the, of the empires and the, the imperialist empires in the Middle East, the wars that we've helped generate, uh, climate change, uh, poverty, everything else, As one uh, European official put it, he said, it's not just Europe. He said, the global south is on the move, right? Mm -hmm. So both in out of Latin America, out of Asia, out of Africa, out of the Middle East, uh, given the, you know, saturation of media that shows, you know, what life in the West looks like on television, at least, Millions of people are on the move. Mm-hmm. They want to be in these countries. Um, so progressives in beautiful compassion want to welcome them and create homes for them. Conservatives say, we can't take care of all these people, mm-hmm. roughly speaking. Compassionate conservatives. We can't do it for everybody. And Where do both you... Both instincts... Are understandable. Right, <laughs> but where do you see the balance there? In other words, where, um, from the point of view of telling a new story, what is the new story that you see us creating about the capacity of uh, Western democracies to take in the global South, even though we contributed enormously to the reasons why they need to leave their homelands. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, paradoxical. On that it level. is paradoxical. Uh, but I do feel hopeful about the solutions that when I was working with Buckminster Fuller in the 70s on something called the World Game, mm-hmm. we were doing basically scenarios and, and projections, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, human futures where you actually have a world that works mm-hmm. for all. And... You know, you'll have to take my word on this, but uh, if you do your homework or start to play with the variables, energy, food, you know, all all the uh, Mm -hmm. parameters of uh, survival and thriving, Mm -hmm. um, the biggest blockade we have is human consciousness. We're we're just not designing systems that allow for, I mean, look at the economic disparity alone. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want to... Does it make any sense for the richest 400 people on the planet mm. to own 50% of the what? Does it? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. You know, mm-hmm. And you've got thousands of babies dying every day from starvation mm-hmm. or from, you know, it, it, it's okay. So I guess my solution, uh, you know, in this most genero, generic sense would be uh, instead of... Uh, creating a situation where people feel they, out of suffering and death and destruction, 
have to migrate or immigrate mm-hmm. from where they are and go to the mm-hmm. promised land. Mm-hmm. How about we really invest in creating the promised land everywhere? Mm-hmm. Now, that means that those of us who are consuming most of the world's non-renewable resources mm-hmm. have to reevaluate our lifestyles. And this is where you really get into trouble because mm-hmm. the Europeans, the white people in Europe and in America and Canada and North America, uh, We'd have to sacrifice something. Mm-hmm. You know? I would argue that what needs to be sacrificed, we should be letting go of anyway, which is mm-hmm. overconsumption of shit we don't need, you know, mm-hmm. in the face of human suffering that's being caused by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everything from the slave labor. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it's uh, it's a kind of a, uh, what's the Hopi word? Koyanaskatsi world, mm-hmm. life out of balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe... As, uh, again, uh, my mentor, Bucky Fuller, believed that it, it is, uh, it, it's a design problem, mm-hmm. you know, that we have systemic evil that's built into the way the, uh, the industrial uh, scientific age has, has mm-hmm. structured the world. And that's, that's a story. You see, that's the thing. It's, it's only one way, for instance, with economies of, of the idea mm-hmm. that capitalism is... The the uh, the only alternative it wasn't that Mark, Margaret Thatcher Tina, mm-hmm. you know there is no alternative to mm-hmm. free market capitalism. Yes, there is. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are lots of them. Human creativity hasn't ended at this point. You know, mm-hmm. the end of history. Fukuyama's book was you know wrong. <laughs> history and evolution are continuing, and the, the question is, when you deal with a global culture, if it doesn't work. For everybody, guess what? Mm-hmm. You know, no justice, no peace. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the situation we're in. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, I think if you want peace and you want prosperity for all, you have to literally redesign the economy, the educational system. All this, basically, every institution is is being disrupted. Uh, you know, without us having to to to, to uh, consciously do it, it's it's happening unconsciously, and I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't disagree with that analysis. Um, I wrote something the other day about uh, reading that the U.S. um, uh, controls over 50% of the uh, armament sales worldwide and that our armament sales just went up to $30 billion. And I divided that by the number of refugees and displaced people in the world and came up with a number of uh, $3,000 per person mm-hmm. that if we just took our sales to say nothing of the total cost of the military, um, we could give $3,000 to every displaced person and refugee in the world. You know, that's almost a living wage in large parts of the world. So, yep. again, I don't disagree. And I also don't disagree with your point that the, the challenge to such a global shift is above all a shift in consciousness and above all that the Western powers, uh, people would have to give up a great deal of overconsumption, which as you say, you would argue that we ought to be letting go of anyway. So that the real place that we keep coming to, which is so interesting to me, is we don't disagree on the analysis, we don't disagree on the solution, Uh, We stand in different places 
on how we hold, I don't want to say the probability, but the, um, the ability to live as fully as you do in the hope, which I think has an awful lot to do with both character and this life of experience with ego-dissolving work that has made um, the universal patterns and uh, the reality of love such a, a powerful uh, experience for you. Well, um... I think this is part of why I am drawn to you, because <laughs> you're able to carry that, and I think I want more of it, <laughs> but have not been willing to uh, uh, do the things that might give me access to that. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, Peggy, uh, my dear wife, uh, is what I call an anxiety bunny, meaning that she... Right. she experiences anxiety yeah. in her life and it's, it's part of her personality mm -hmm. style uh, and I am not mm -hmm. uh, a high anxiety person <clears throat> I have uh, for whatever reasons you know this this capacity to examine the same situations mm -hmm. and, and look at the world and come away with a lower heartbeat than mm -hmm. a lot of people so that's a blessing I don't take any credit I don't mm -hmm. know you know it's kind of like that was my nature all along. And then, like you say, opening up to ego dissolution experiences mm -hmm. of different kinds mm -hmm. or, you know, I do feel lucky to have been drawn into the world of jazz because if you know anything about jazz music, uh, uh, you, you have to essentially be able to deal with chaotic unknowns in the moment and uh, find the beauty and, and create mm -hmm. something new uh, mm -hmm. based on what they call creative destruction. That said, um, because uh, my life works well on that level, if, if, if I see the cup as half full as opposed mm -hmm. to half empty, mm -hmm. or as one person said, you know, those who believe we can't and those who believe we can mm -hmm. are both right. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe we can Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm enough of a student of real politic. I mm -hmm. mean, as you know, I do a news list uh, that has a lot of uh, political analysis in it uh, and strategy and tactics because uh, I do think it's important that, uh, that we not be uh, pie in the sky. Right. Idealists, you know, th that we recognize that we have to do something collectively in order to solve uh, the crises. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we are facing a perfect storm of crises. Mm -hmm. You know, almost too many to, to list, you know, mm -hmm. and, and yet everyone, I really believe that the planet as a whole, humanity as a whole, is experiencing a kind of psychic trauma unconsciously that we know that we're heading toward disaster. I agree with that. I have no doubt about that. And I think... And I think there's almost a willful unwillingness to look at it. Mm -hmm. Willful ignorance is what Yeah, I mean, Stephen here Schwartz we are, because... Um, <clears throat> what's the name of the, the British uh, guy who did the first work on climate change? There was a piece in The Guardian on him just recently. Not James Hansen. No. Yeah, Hansen, oh, James Hansen. Oh, he's American, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, but he lives in England, mm -hmm. I believe, right? Yeah. Uh, and there was a piece in The Guardian on him recently basically said, 
enjoy the next 20 years because, you know, we'll be in full climate change in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And there were some other pieces that we circulated for the Collaborative on Health and the Environment that, you know, the fish are going to disappear from the oceans. And so all of a sudden something that we saw as kind of a 50 to 200 year, you know, horizon of disaster is being compressed down into 20 year, right? Well, 20 years, I mean, I'm 72. I might even be alive in another 20 years. But my granddaughter will be 27, right? And thinking about having children and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... 20 years suddenly is, is right now. It's, and as you say, the, the perfect storm of catastrophes is really upon us, mm-hmm. you know? So the question of how we live is no longer hypothetical, you know? Just no longer hypothetical. I totally agree. Yeah. I, and I, yeah. I, again, this is the good news, bad news moment from the point of view of not knowing the future, or impossible to, yeah. uh, to recognizing that 20 years from now, the world is going to be a different place. Right. Uh, and we're not going to be able to, quote unquote, stop the change, yeah. uh, changes. Uh, we can remediate, obviously, and, and we can do a lot better when it comes to fossil fuel consumption. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that, when I talk about the decisive decade, that's really what I'm asking people to, to recognize. Do what you can. Let's do what we can and, and recognize that suffering is inevitable. I mean, mm-hmm. it's in my opinion, it's already here. I mean, yeah. watch the weather patterns on the planet. Uh, I know. What's happening in the storms in England, what's happening oh, in yeah. Texas, what's happening all over the world. Seven yeah. tornadoes in the middle of the winter in Texas right. because of the only, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. okay. That's uh, that's suffering that's happening as a result of you know unconscious behaviors over the past uh, mm-hmm. two hundred years, you know, mm-hmm. the buildup of carbon, etc. So, how then shall we live? As uh, Wayne Muller likes to put it, you know, mm-hmm. in the face of this, how then shall we live? And my response is, let's create the capacity for love mm-hmm. at a level. That in particular, I mean, my simple answer is let's raise healthy, happy children. Mm-hmm. People say, well, you know, we don't have enough resources. Yes, we do. You know, we know mm-hmm. how to raise healthy, mm-hmm. happy children. It has almost nothing to do with the material uh, resources. Mm-hmm. The poorest people I've ever met on this planet have more joy in their lives than most rich Americans. Mm-hmm. That's not an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you create communities, you know, that have this capacity to support and enjoy and, and, and uh, you know, cooperate together to raise healthy, happy children. Mm-hmm. And to do that uh, would, would, I think, be, be a new story that, mm-hmm. that we don't want to live into. I love happy children. You've been listening to part one of a two-part conversation with Rick and Grassi and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us.